Today we want to wrap up a series of sermons we've been doing on the book of 1 John. For six weeks we've been studying the book of the New Testament named 1 John. As pastors, as elders, as community group leaders, we have enjoyed our conversations with all of you around this book. Sometimes it is confusing, but it is always a good thing to wrestle with God's Word and what it means and what it means for our lives. So today we want to look at the last chapter of the book. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. Amy read a portion of this for us earlier. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. If you have not been here at all for the series, that's okay. You'll jump right in. But if you have been here, you've probably by this point noticed that John likes to reiterate his points over and over and over again. Reading 1 John is kind of like watching clothes in the dryer. It just goes around and around and around and around. If you were a literary critic, you might say that his writing is cyclical. But if you're just a simple man who likes to eat at the Taco Bell, you would say it's like watching clothes go around in the dryer. And great news, as you probably know, a base was stolen in the World Series. So on Thursday, everyone can get a free taco at the Taco Bell. As a minister, these are the sorts of texts I receive from people in the congregation about these important spiritual matters. So I think I know where I'll see some of you on on Thursday. So in chapter 5, John is going to reiterate many of his major themes. He will give us some practical takeaways, but then he'll throw in a confusing statement or two just for good measure. What I want to focus in on today in chapter 5 are three transformations that John highlights. John highlights that if you follow Jesus... When you follow Jesus, if you ever decide to follow Jesus, he begins to change you. And specifically, he points out three things that Jesus begins to change in our lives. So I want to walk through those three transformations. So that one, you could see the transformation, but then two, you could rejoice, celebrate the transformation, but then hopefully and most importantly, join in the transformation. So see the transformation, rejoice in the transformation, but ultimately join God in the transformation. So that's the wind-up. Now here's the pitch. Not much wind-up today. Here are, the, uh, here are the points. Second World Series illusion of the day. Number one, number one, number, number, number one. Transformations from following Jesus. Number one is a desire to stay the same becomes a desire to change. Number one, transformation from following Jesus from 1 John 5, a desire to stay the same becomes a desire to change. Now there's an important distinction here. We do not change so that we can follow Jesus. We follow Jesus so that we can change. We do not change so that we can follow Jesus. We follow Jesus so that we can change. The order is important. If you flip the order, if you mix up the order, you fundamentally misunderstand the Christian faith. And people can say all kind of nasty things about you in this world, but as one of your pastors, I hope that one of those things is not that you fundamentally misunderstand the Christian faith. Right? We do not have to submit a resume, a spiritual resume to Jesus and see if he accepts us. What Jesus offers us to do is to come to Him with our doubts, with our failures, with the pieces of our broken lives, and to give those things to Him. And in response, He says, welcome home. 
And then on the sure foundation of Jesus, you and I can work together with Jesus to begin to build our lives into something greater. 1 John 5, 18 begins by saying, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. So John is saying here that as a follower of Jesus, if you ever become or if you are a follower of Jesus, you are born of God. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. You are God's child by faith in Jesus. And then he just says that we know, like plain as day, we know that God's children do not continue to sin. This is where it gets confusing because if you remember the very first week at the very beginning of the book, John wrote this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now how do those two statements fit together? That God's children don't continue to sin, uh, but, but that if you say you don't sin, you're deceiving yourselves. Well, you could get be cynical about it and say, well, John was along in his years when he wrote this book, and maybe he forgot what he had written a few chapters ago. But remember what John wants you to do. He wants you to walk around thinking about this stuff. How do those two work together? I mean, the same guy wrote them both. What's he trying to get at? And so you'll walk around thinking about it, and then, sneaky, John has you walking around thinking about the Bible. Not just saying, oh, that was a sweet thing in the Bible, and put the Bible back on the shelf to collect dust, but you really walk around thinking about it. That's part of what John's trying to do. Well, how do those two work together? Well, I take the two together to mean that following Jesus changes the direction of our lives. Following Jesus changes the direction of our lives. It moves our lives in a new direction. It's not like I just decide to follow Jesus, I trust my life to Jesus, and then I just go back unchanged to the life I've always known. Part of why I decided to follow Jesus, maybe you're the same way, is that I wanted my life, I needed my life to head in a new direction. I wanted to live in a vibrant relationship with God. I wanted to live a life that honored God, not a life that dishonored God. And following Jesus changes us. A desire to change begins to override a desire to stay the same. We are no longer content to plunge ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into a godless life. We are no longer content with the parts of our lives that we realize dishonor God. And so we desire to change. And often the first step in the desire to change is a willingness to confess that change is needed. Right? So that by confessing our sin, confessing our shortcomings to God, by confessing to God, here are the habits and the hang-ups that I cannot get past, though I wish I could. By confessing these things to God, the change is beginning By bringing our shortcomings and failures to God, the change is beginning. By not feeling like we have to hide these things from God, but in fact we can bring these things to God. So that confessing our sin and shortcoming to God becomes one of the ways we start to leave that sin behind. Acknowledging the need for change is a vital part of the change. 
So that's number one, that a desire to stay the same becomes a desire to change as we follow Jesus. And part of how we begin the process of change is simply confessing a change is needed. Number two, transformations from following Jesus. Number two, we come to see God's commands as burdens, and that begins to transform to seeing God's commands as gifts. Seeing God's commands as burdens transforms into seeing God's commands as gifts. So when I was a new Christian, one of the very first things I learned that Jesus taught was to love our enemies and then very practically pray for those who persecute you. So that instead of our natural desire, my natural desire to get even or to slug somebody in the jaw, you you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. Now, at the time, I thought about it. I didn't really have any, like, sworn enemies or an arch nemesis or anything. I wasn't a superhero uh, after all. But, but I did have this guy at school that I didn't much care for, and he didn't much care for me. He wasn't nice to me. He wasn't really nice to anybody. And, and so I took Jesus' teaching to, to mean that I should start praying for him, praying that good things would happen to him. And I realized it at the time, and I realize it even more now looking back on it, that changed me. It changed my perspective on him, it changed my perspective on our relationship, and in fact, in a funny turn of events, he actually became one of my, my good friends. When he started attending the church that I attended, and then, you know, as luck would have it, he got put in my community group, the community group that I was already in. God has a funny sense of humor, and on this one, I was the punchline. So this was me working out what Jesus was teaching, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I always then point out that if someone comes up to you and says, hey, I just want you to know I've been praying for you, that may not mean what you think it means. It wouldn't have meant what he thought it meant. That's what Jesus teaches us to do. In retrospect, Jesus never tells us why we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He just says to do it. And throughout the Bible, God teaches us to do plenty of things without saying why. Things about relationships, things about money, things about intimacy, things about alcohol, things about care for the poor, things about the language that we use. John writes this in 1 John 5, 2 and 3. This is how we know that that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. So if you were here last week and you made it to the end of the sermon without falling asleep, you will remember that chapter 4 ends by John saying, If you really want to show that you love God, love one another. And now John begins chapter 5 by saying, and if you really want to love one another, do what? Love God. It's the clothes in the dryer. It just goes round and round and round. So if you really love God, love one another. But if you really want to love one another, love God. And how do you love God, John says? By keeping His commands. It's interesting he doesn't say, think about all the ways that God has hooked you up. He says, if you really want to love God, keep God's commands. And then he adds this little parenthetical comment. God's commands are not burdensome. 
John's point being that, that as you and I follow Jesus, this thing inside of us begins to change. At the level of the heart, in our minds, at the level of the will, we come to see God's commands not as a burden, but as a gift. God is trying to align our lives with how our lives were meant to be lived. He's not just trying to load more and more and more and more and more on top of us. So practically, what that looks like is that you or I come across something in the Bible. We were, we were taught it on Sunday. We learned it in our community group or in our Bible study. Uh, maybe we're reading the Bible for our own. We come across something in the Bible, uh, something God commands, something that Jesus teaches, and the Holy Spirit connects the words on the page with something going on in our lives. And the scripture may say why this is a good thing, and the scripture may not say why this is a good thing. But the question that you and I have to decide is, is this a burden or a gift? Is this a burden or is this a gift? John says that when we live out God's commands, in other words, when we see them as gifts and not burdens, and thus we live out God's commands, it increases our love for God. Because we walk in the light instead of in the darkness. We walk on the path of life instead of walking on the path of death. And our love for God will increase. A deep love for God will actually allow us to love other people more. The Christian writer and thinker C.S. Lewis wrote this in one of his books. He wrote, you cannot get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. You cannot get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. You've got to scratch your head about that for a minute. What's he talking about? What he's getting at is the greatest gift you can give your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends, the greatest gift you can give them is to not expect them to be your God. To not expect them to give you what only God can give you which is identity, which is security, which is purpose. Look to God for those things. Cultivate as the primary, most important, number one thing, cultivate a deep love for God. And receive from God what you can only receive from God. Your true identity, your purpose, your security in this world. That then lets you turn back to all the secondary, important things in your life. The people you love your job, your studies. And you are actually able to love them more. That's counter, that seems different than what you would think. If I'm spending all this time loving God, I don't have any time to love anybody else. But the scripture says it's actually the opposite. That the more you and I love God, the the deeper we cultivate a love for God, the more love that begins to overflow in our lives, and thus we are better able to love one another. So it's not just about loving people or loving the right people or loving the right things. It's about loving them in the right proportion. But the best way we begin to love the people in our lives and the people God has put into our lives is to cultivate a deep love for God. And John says the best way to cultivate a deep love for God is to keep God's commands, which are gifts and not burdens. 
I did it right this time. At the, at the 8.15, I said it right. At the 9.30, I said God's commands are burdens and not gifts. And everyone looked at me like, wait a minute, that's the opposite of what you just, I just misspoke. So I did it right this time, and for some no apparent reason told you I messed up at the 9.30 service. It's weighing deeply on me, apparently. Gifts and not burdens. And then number three, number three, number, number, number. Number three, transformation from following Jesus. Number three is that reliance on self becomes reliance on Jesus. Reliance on self becomes reliance on Jesus. So a desire to stay the same becomes a desire to change. God's commands as burdens becomes God's commands as gifts. And then a desire or reliance on self becomes reliance on God. Periodically, they do these surveys in the U.S. where they call people on the phone and ask them all kinds of questions like, do you believe in God? Do you think you'll go to heaven? Like just easy, simple little questions, these sorts of things. And they've done this enough now that they can watch trends in different eras. So like in our day and time, people in the U.S. are less likely to believe in God than in previous generations, right? That's not a real surprise. Now that's not that's not worldwide of course the Christian church is, is the Christian faith is thriving throughout the world if you get towards the equator and then south of the equator Christian faith is thriving it's just in this weird little outpost we call western civilization we're trying to figure out if God exists but that's the world we live in so people are less likely now than in previous generations in our U.S., in the U.S., to think that God exists. But there's an interesting uh, other trend happening, which is people today in the U.S. are more likely to think they're going to heaven than in previous generations. That's an unexpected uh, turn. It kind of comes across as like, I'm not sure there's a God but if there is, he's going to be really lucky to get to live with me forever. Right? Because our confidence that God exists is going down, but our confidence we're going to heaven is going up. So, so where's the confidence being placed? The confidence is being placed in ourselves. So much so that, that on average, people are more likely to be certain that their name is on the invite list to this eternal party. They're not even sure it actually exists. Now, the Christian faith has something to say to this. And, and it's, we're not saying self-confidence is bad. A little bit of self-confidence is a bad thing. Self-conf- a little bit of self-confidence is not a bad thing. But the Christian faith wants to ask, uh, or challenge, really, living a life based on self-reliance. The Christian faith and Jesus wants to challenge, how are you going to live a life of self-reliance? How are you going to build a spiritual life on self-reliance? 1 John 5.13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I take that as the summary verse of 1 John. John is writing so that people would have assurance of their eternal life. But in our day and time, a growing number of folks have assurance of eternal life. We're not sure that it exists, but we're pretty sure we're going to get it if it does. And so we've got to go two verses earlier to, to see the full thing. Two verses earlier, John writes this. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 
So eternal life is something available to us, but it's not something we earn. It's not something we qualify for. It's not a privilege given to the best 15% of applicants. Eternal life is a gift. It's received as a gift from Jesus, from the Son of God. It's something that Jesus offers to his followers. If you and I think that God is going to be honored to spend eternity with us, we don't yet fully realize the grandeur, how wondrous, how truly perfect God is. But God is also loving. God is also merciful. And so He took on human flesh. He came as Jesus Christ, fully God and fully human. He lived a perfect life. He died an unjust death. But then He rose victorious from the grave so that you and I can be reconciled to God. Eternal life is available to each of us, but only because we can ride in on Jesus' coattails. So through faith, through trusting Jesus, trusting our lives into Jesus' hands, trusting that He has done all that's needed to reconcile us to God, that nothing else is needed and nothing else will do, we trust our lives to Jesus. But we don't just rely on Jesus for eternal life, right? The, whole, the Christian faith kind of has two sides to it. There, there's the get to heaven side, but then there's also the bring heaven to earth side. So we don't just rely on Jesus for eternal life. We rely on Jesus for the strength to get through each day. We rely on Jesus for the strength to see God's commands as gifts. For the courage to change instead of stay the same. And we rely on Jesus to pray. Verse 14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will... He hears us. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. You you may have noticed, uh, just depending on your exposure to the Christian faith, but even if you have just a little bit, you, you may have noticed that most Christians end their prayers saying, In Jesus' name, Amen. Almost like as a tack on. I've said all this stuff and he say, in Jesus' name, amen. Why do Christians do that? Why do Christians end in Jesus' name, amen, most of the time? Well, the reason is, Christians see Jesus as the bridge between God and humanity. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Because you think about this, prayer is like walking into the throne room of the God of all creation. And if you and I, we walk into this throne room, and then we have the gall to ask for something. So the question might reasonably be raised, well, wait a minute, on whose authority are you in this room to begin with? And on whose authority are you asking? And a good self-reliant answer might go something like this. Well, you know, God, I've, um, I've done pretty good lately. Yeah, I've been to church a little bit. I, uh, I almost signed up to help with that thing, so um, I, I got some goodwill, you know, and I'm going to cash it in now, and here's my request. <laughs> but a more Jesus-reliant answer would go something like this. It would go something like, you know, honestly, I, I have no right to be in this room. I have no right to ask you anything. I, I have no right to expect or demand an answer. Right? Like, if, if you write a letter to, like, a semi-famous person, do you expect to receive a response? 
And yet you and I pray to the God of the universe, the creator of all things, in his throne room. I, I, I don't have the right to expect any or demand any kind of a response. But the verse says we can pray with confidence. With confidence. So I'm asking you, God, with confidence, not because of my authority, but because I'm asking on an authority that is not my own. I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Jesus, who was overwhelmed by darkness. Jesus, who was crushed by hatred. Jesus, who was swallowed up by death. But then he conquered all three. He rose victorious so that light and love and life are victorious. Jesus is victorious. And Jesus invites you and me to share in his victory. So that we might pray and live and love and care in Jesus' name. So that we might be different. So that we might not be the same anymore in Jesus' name. So as I wrap up 1 John, or we, there was multiple people who preached this series. As we wrap up 1 John, here's my question for you to reflect on. As you think about the three transformations I mentioned, how has following Jesus changed you? Or how could following Jesus change you? Let's see if I can remember them. Into the third service. Desire to stay the same transforms into a desire to change. Seeing God's commands as burdens transforms to seeing God's commands as gifts. And then reliance on self becomes reliance on Jesus. As you think about those three transformations and think about your own life, how has following Jesus changed you? See the transformation. Celebrate. Rejoice in the transformation. And ultimately, join God in continuing the transformation. If you're not following Jesus, or, or, or Jesus has only like started to just chip away just a little bit at some of this, how could following Jesus change you? Is it time for a change? Is it time to put the first thing first? Is it time to rely on Jesus instead of yourself? In doing so, the old hymn says, you will find strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God or to listen to God about whatever it is He's stirring in your heart or in your mind. Wherever this service has intersected with your life, just talk to God.